president of Genesis Proclaimed Association. He earned a master's in theology from Evangelical Theological Seminary in Virginia and spent time as an Air Force pilot in Vietnam by more than 150 missions. Uh, when I asked him if this was like top gun sort of stuff, he said he didn't fly those types of jets until later. Um, today he is going to try to unconfuse the confusion of battle for us. So let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Fisher. I notice everybody has evacuated the front rows. Is there a reason for that? You want to get as far back from the subject as you can? Well, the purpose of my talk is not to create more confusion, but to terminate confusion, or at least alleviate uh, confusion. Uh, and that's uh, the topic of the Tower of Babel. Now, uh, it's only found in uh, Genesis. You cannot find any parallel in uh, ancient Mesopotamian literature, um, except that it does fit within a period of history, and it does have a very plausible explanation. Here's a quick review. Genesis 69 is the flood, and as Paul mentioned, there is a correlation between that 2900 B.C., there's a number of writers that do coalesce on that. Uh, we do have uh, radiometric dating of the flood or at least water-laid clay deposits in the central cities in Kish and Shurapak, uh, Lagash, uh, uh, Arek, maybe I mentioned Arek, and Sippar, which do correlate to this time. So 2900 B.C. is a pretty good date, we believe. This is followed by Genesis 10, which is the dispersion followed by Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. You will notice that 10 comes between 9 and 11. In other words, the dispersion occurs first. Then is the incident at the Tower of Babel. Now, you may know that traditionalists have to reverse the order in order to get all the languages scrambled so then they can disperse. And that's because of a basic misunderstanding. So when the King James translators got to this verse, they already came into the translation process with a preconceived notion. And that was that Adam was the source of all humanity, that there was a global flood that wiped everybody out with the exception of Noah and his sons and their three wives. They were all gathered together in the land of Shinar, which is the Hebrew word for Sumer, and basically it's southern Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq. Um, so when they got to this phrase, well, they thought that there was all one common language being spoken by all the peoples on earth, which were basically Noah's descendants. So what they translated was this, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Well, that sounds very much like, okay, there was one common universal language spoken over the entire earth. But the problem, the true confusion of tongues is not the Tower of Babel incident. It's the translation of Hebrew into English. <laughs> because here, the word earth, arets, you can see in the following verse, Aretz, they translated land. They didn't say the whole earth of Shinar. They said the whole land of Shinar. 
So here's a perfect incident where they could have said the whole land rather than the whole earth. And the Hebrew word safa literally means lip. So doing a little tree retranslating and the whole land was of one lip and of one speech. Now what does it mean? Well, let's put that into a context that we can understand. Everybody here remembers the event of 9-11. We've all seen those images over and over again of the planes crashing into the towers and the destruction, and it was something none of us will ever forget. Well, let's say that this is the next day. This is 9-12. Let's say that you lived in Canada and we hadn't talked, we hadn't talked for months. And on the very next day, I call you up and I say, my word, the whole land is of one lip and one speech. Well, what would you think I was talking about? I didn't tell you that we're all speaking English here. I'm telling you that there's a topic of conversation. There's, some, there's something that's all the buzz. We're all speaking about one particular thing. Now, in the context of 9-11, you would know exactly what it was. Here, it's in the rest of the chapter. It's about the tower. And it's about the, what was going on in southern Mesopotamia as we were building these towers, and they were being built all over the place, and each individual city had their own. And I'll get into the purpose of that in just a second. So they weren't all speaking one language. We know that. Now, this is a um, depiction that's probably dated around in the neighborhood of 2500 B.C. If you look at the central figure on the, about the middle and just to the right of the middle, this is a Sumerian priest. Now, how do we know he's Sumerian? Well, he has a bald head, he has a big nose, he has no hair on his face, he's naked to the waist, and he wears a skirt. That is a Sumerian. But look who's giving him a sacrifice. That is an Akkadian. How do we know that? Well, he's got long hair, he's got a long beard, and he's the one that has a rather smaller nose. Behind him is another Sumerian. So what we have in Sumer at that time is two separate cultures speaking two entirely unrelated languages. In fact, the Akkadians called them, the Sumerians, the black-headed people. They were even racially distinct. So there was more than one language spoken right there in Sumer, notwithstanding the rest of the world. So that can't be the message. That can't be what the Bible writer was trying to tell us. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, tar, asphalt, had they for mortar. This comes from Jaquetta Hawk's Atlas of Man. In Mesopotamia, the temples of the pre-dynastic period developed into grandiose monuments, which dominated not only the cities they were meant to serve, but the whole of the valley floor. Though their design showed high skill, technically, they were the simplest. 
a mud brick core encased in a weatherproof skin of burnt brick set in bitumen. Sound familiar? Now, for what purpose were the ziggurats built? Well, we all know that why questions are the hardest. What, when, where, that's easy. It's the why questions. Now, if you would read Sumerologists, they will say, well, um, perhaps they were building artificial mountains to remind them of home. Really? When, when you look at these structures, <laughs> would you imagine they would have spent all that time and effort building things to remind them of home? They could have just moved to the mountains. Didn't have to build replicas. Let's use a little data and evidence. No trace of these ziggurats or anything like them is found prior to 3000 BC. Well, when was the flood? 2900 BC. Could there be a correlation between the flood and the building of these mud brick structures? Well, Sumerologists don't go that way because the flood, well, that's biblical stuff. They don't get into that. There's no Adamites. They do believe in Semites or Akkadians and Sumerians, but don't talk to them in terms of a flood. They're not going to subscribe to it. So they have to work out a definition or an explanation that gets around the biblical information. But if you were in an area where it flooded every spring, and you were getting wiped away occasionally, and the big one had just happened, what would you do to survive future floods? You don't have May Wests, what would you do? What they did was they started building mud brick platforms in each of the cities right in the middle. So when it would rain and flood, they had a place to go. They could scamper up to the top, wait for the flood waters to recede, and then go clean the mud out of their homes, and life goes on. And God said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, over a period of time from 2900 B.C. until about 2000 B.C. when Sumer was destroyed, there was this period of ziggurat building. What initially were just a means of surviving floods all of a sudden became high mountains with temples adorned with cut stone and lapis lazuli, and they became temples of their city gods. Each city had its own protectorate god. So how you honored him would depend on how much benevolence he would bestow on you. And you wanted to elevate your God above all the other gods because he controlled things. He controlled the weather. He controlled pestilence. He controlled drought. He controlled floods. And whoever was your uh, city God, whether it was the sun God at Sippar or the moon God at, uh, at Ur, that's the God that controlled your destiny. And the more you elevated him, especially in the eyes of the other gods, the more honor he would get from the other gods and the more benevolent he would be towards you. So it makes sense. This comes from a liturgy for Gudia, king of, of Lagash. The bright 
crown of the temple rested upon it, and as the lapis lazuli mountain of heaven and earth rose from the earth. The pavement of the terrace of the great temple he laid as a pure vessel on which honey and wine are poured, it was open to heaven. The shrine with a, with a couch, which he built like a perfect mountain, as the holy stone vessel of the deep it rose. On account of the great name which he had made for himself, he was received among the gods into their assembly. The fountains of the deep broke up in Genesis. What is the deep? The deep is any body of water in, in, in southern Mesopotamia. It could be a canal, it could be a river, it could be the Persian Gulf. And here they use it in this liturgy. Notice the commonality between the great name which he had made for himself in the liturgy with let us make us a name in Genesis. The builders of Babel were not about to be outdone. They would build a tower of such proportions that it would show their God the extent of their devotion. Pleased at this, their God would reward them with good fortune. Displeased, however, the real God showed his wrath. Now, there was a number of excursions into Iraq, and one of the earliest ones was 1616, where Vail was the first visitor to examine the real site of ancient Babylon. He sent back to Europe a few inscribed bricks. He described the tower at Babylon as a huge rectangular tower or pyramid with its corners pointing to the cardinal points. Describing the material of the structure as the most remarkable thing I ever saw, he noted the sun-dried bricks, but he also noted that here and there and at places that served as supports, the bricks of the same size were baked. Dominican father St. Albert visited Beers Nimrud, which is named after Nimrod, west of the Euphrates around the year 1700. Thinking he was visiting the original Babel, he examined two mounds, one situated in Mesopotamia, the other in Arabia, about an hour's distance from the Euphrates. He examined two masses of cemented bricks, one standing, the other overturned and mused. People think that the latter hill is the remains of the real Babylon, but I do not know what they will make of the other, which is opposite and exactly like this one. Not only the Semites, but the Sumerians too were adept at building ziggurats. In addition to the site at Uruk, biblical Erech, the Sumerians built temple monuments at Nippur, Lagash, Kish, and Ur. Ur was Abraham's hometown, you may remember. Even smaller population centers to the north were building their own. Many of the true ziggurats were built upon old temple complexes about the time of the third dynasty at Ur, and Andhra Perot counted 33 ziggurats in 27 different cities. I think you've probably seen pictures of ziggurats before, so I'm not going to, this is the one at Ur. And this shows the ziggurat as in another context, and that is as a fortification. When the enemy soldiers would mount the, the, uh, the surrounding perimeter fence and get inside, their last ditch stand was to scamper up the ziggurat. And maybe they could wait out the attack. The origin of Babylon is rooted in the Akkadian Bab-Elu and Babel, comes from Babel, and both mean gate of God. The ziggurat itself was called the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. Not enough was known in the early days of Mesopotamian exploration 
to piece together the history of the tower, likely constructed originally between 2400 and 2050 BC. Expecting to find an ancient structure, they looked for signs of sheer antiquity. Such was not to be seen, however. In 689 BC, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, and you can read about him in Chronicles and Kings and Isaiah, he was the Assyrian king who warred against Hezekiah, you may remember. Well, he also warred against Babylon. He sacked it, he destroyed the city and the tower itself, dumping the bricks in a canal. The ziggurat of Babylon was restored by Napopolazar, the founder of the Neo-Babylonian dynasty about 625 to 605 BC. And these are his words. The Lord Marduk commanded me concerning Emenaki, the stage tower of Babylon, which before my time had come dilapidated and ruinous. He didn't mention it was destroyed by an Assyrian king. He left that part out. That I should make its foundation secure in the bosom of the netherworld and make its summit like the heavens. His first son, Nebuchadnezzar, that ring any bells? Continued in the efforts started by his father, carrying out building the tower at Babylon until 562 BC. When finished, a seven-stage structure and its temple complex reached nearly 300 feet in height. Herodotus is our world's first historian, and he said this. He visited the tower and he described it. In the midst of the temple, a solid tower was constructed, one stadium in length and one stadium in width. Upon this tower stood another, and again upon this another, and so on, making eight towers in all, one upon another. All eight towers can be climbed by means of a spiral staircase, which runs round the outside. About halfway up, there are seats where those who make the ascent can sit and rest. In the topmost tower, there's a great temple, and in the temple is a golden table. Under Perok touches on the ziggurat as a link. Thus, the ziggurat appears to me to be a bond of union whose purpose was to assure communication between earth and heaven. Even when this idea is not actually clearly expressed, it is nevertheless implicitly suggested. For what's the mountain but a giant stepladder by means of which a man may ascend as near as possible to the sky? Not only in order to touch it, but also and especially to approach nearer to the deity whom he seeks and whose descent towards mankind he wishes to facilitate. In other words, the temples were built so high so that this gave the gods a way to come down to them. Was this in the minds of God's chosen people, his faithful remnant, those in the line of Shem and Arphaxad? Perhaps if the sanctuary was high enough and if the sacrifices were appealing or in sufficient abundance, God himself might be enticed to come down and dwell amongst his people. Isaiah voiced that appeal. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might float down at thy presence. Well, in the end, they were successful. God did come down. Not then, not striding down the steps of a Mesopotamian ziggurat. God came down over 2,000 years later in Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judea. Any questions? Go ahead. It's not my idea, their idea, brilliant, right? <laughs> I doubt they had smog issues. <laughs> I believe that they were confused, but we have recorded history written in Amorite, in Canaanite, in uh, Elamite, in uh, Babylonian, uh, Akkadian, uh, Hebrew, and it's all the same basic language. They're dialects, but they're all basically derivatives of Akkadian. So the effect we can see, they didn't speak different languages. They all spoke a Semitic tongue similar to the Akkadian tongue. Uh, why did they stop? No, I believe that there was a confusion. I believe that. Uh, I don't know what form that confusion took or whether they were unable to communicate with each other counter to the event at Pentecost where the uh, the apostles spoke and everybody could hear them in their own tongue. In this case, whatever tongue they were speaking temporarily, was they were unable to, to discern it one to another. Well, I follow the data and evidence. I believe that there is historical integrity in Genesis. I believe it's been overlooked because of a common misunderstanding, much of it due to bad translation. Okay. All right. Well, let's thank, thank you. Speaker.